Yeah, warm welcome to um, all visitors here today again. It's great to have you here. And for all of the uh, people who attend this church regularly, welcome. It's um, great to be up in here and share with you from the Word of God this morning. Um, I'm hoping you're hungry because I'm going to share with you a sandwich today. <laughs> a spiritual sandwich. So we've got three people, three stories we're going to be looking at in detail. And one of the, two of them are positive, one of them not so positive. So the first will be our top of the, the bread, then we'll have our filling, and then we'll finish with some good news as well. So let's dive in. The, well, the three people we're going to be looking at is Mary, who anointed Jesus, and Paul um, did a great job of sharing about her so we'll, we'll just touch on a couple more points around her secondly our feeling will be looking at the life of judas and his particular particularly his betrayal of jesus and then we're going to finish with looking at peter who denied jesus so unfortunately we just can't get through this whole chapter in detail but i'm just going to focus on a few points that god's highlighted to me so Let's start with the woman anointing Jesus and all four Gospels have an account of uh, a woman anointing Jesus at this time in this place in Bethany leading up to the crucifixion of Christ. Luke's account is quite different to the other Gospels. It could have been a separate, different event, but we're not, I'm not really sure to be honest, but it seems to be like that this person who... This woman who anointed Jesus was likely Mary, the um, sister of Martha and Lazarus. And what we know about Mary is that she, um, she confronted Jesus for not being there to, to save her brother Lazarus, you might recall that. And she was quite distressed about how Jesus wasn't there to save him. She didn't really understand who Jesus was at that time and was deeply troubled but then when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead I think that would have had a profound impact on her personal understanding of who Jesus is and this then led to her um, as we just heard anoint Jesus with the oil. In terms of the alabaster box that is referred to it's got quite a lot of meaning and significance so it was basically a rich marble stone that contained um, it was used to decorate Solomon's temple it was found commonly in Israel and these jars or boxes would contain expensive perfume to keep the scent pure and unspoiled and it was often sealed with wax so once that wax seal was broken that was it you the scent was going to escape and it was effectively a one-off use kind of thing you couldn't keep um, putting the wax back on and off uh, another thing just for context is that it was a Jewish custom to anoint a body with aromatic oils in preparation for burial um, and Dennis if you don't mind you can put the verses up just while I'm talking just so people can read along um, and see the scripture on the screen so you might recall that Jesus referred to um, uh, when he was 
basically praising this this act that Mary did. He mentioned that um, she was he was what she was doing was preparing for her his burial. Now I just wanted to um, make one point around the criticism that um, Simon and the other disciples, the people in the room, showed towards Mary after she did this this act. And I want to just point out that, um, yeah, that the disciples really saw what that, that gift, that, that act of love and devotion, in terms of its monetary value, they saw it in terms of, okay, it can feed the poor. This, this, this has got a lot of value, monetary value. Um, but God doesn't necessarily need, you know, our money to help the poor. Like he created this whole universe. Um, he can do that. It's not to say giving the poor is not, we shouldn't be doing that. And, 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 and. But it was particularly this opportunity that Mary had to show her devotion to Jesus and she took that opportunity. And it says there that um, she did what she could. So in terms of like, she had this alabaster box and, and Paul's probably made a good point, I think, around that. It's probably something she inherited perhaps. She, maybe she didn't, couldn't afford this, this expensive perfume herself um, to, out of her own work. But whatever the case, her use of this very, very precious item she had in her possession was the best, best thing she could ever do with it. She poured it out upon her saviour. She poured it out, emptied it, it was fully gone, fully used up and it was poured out. And it was an act of love, it was an act of devotion. Now, yeah, as I mentioned before, there was critical people who looked at this act and thought, well, this is a waste. This is, um, you know, why wouldn't you just sell this and get the, get the money and give it away? Um, but I want to just make the point that we can sometimes look at other people around us and say, why isn't this person doing more? Why am I doing all this service and other people around me aren't doing as much as me? Or why do I see one person doing a lot, others less? You know, that comparison kind of attitude. I just want to say we have to be on guard against that and really understand that God has given us grace as individuals and gifts and we don't, we're not in the position, position to judge others' service to God. Let's leave that with God. Let's leave that for Him to judge and not be critical, but instead encourage, encourage one another to love and good works, as it says in the Scriptures. Now, I just want to make a couple of points around Mary and what she offered up. As, Jesus, as um, Paul's already talked about, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but um, yeah, going back to that perfume, it was actually, there's another reference to that perfume. It's called Spikenard in the scriptures, and it's in the Song of Solomon, and it's actually 
talking about that love relationship between a husband and a wife. So there's a lot of symbolism in this act of Mary as well that we can look at. And it represents the very best in ancient cultures. So, you know, it was like the equivalent of giving, you know, your, your beloved the best diamond ring <laughs> that you could ever, ever, ever find. It was the best of the best. Now, bringing it back, this story, to something that maybe we can relate to a bit more. Um, you know, working for a year, you know, that's quite a substantial sum of money in, like, in today's dollars. Like, if, if we were to save every penny over the course of a year for the, the average wage, it would be a significant sum of money. Um, but I just want to say, like, if we compare this a year's wages to knowing Jesus and spending eternity with him, it's not really, doesn't seem significant, does it? You know, and that's because as believers we value eternity, we value what the future is in store for us and we value Jesus. Um, but I just want to say that as Christians we and followers of Christ, our value for Christ, our value for Jesus, how we treasure him, how we see him, the value we see in him and what he's done for us by dying on the cross, rising again, giving us the free gift of salvation, eternal life, that should be growing. It should be something that is continually we're growing in appreciation of. And when this happens, when this appreciation, when this love for God grows in us, what happens is an exchange takes place. Because the, the personal cost of following Christ, in other words, what we give up, what we lay down, whether it's our time, whether it's our money, whether it's our reputation, whether it's our... In some cases, we'll have to leave people close to us behind to follow Christ. It becomes increasingly small, that cost. That personal cost becomes smaller and smaller because the value we place in Jesus becomes greater and greater. John the Baptist says that I must decrease and he must increase. And so when we're going on in our walk with God, maybe it's good to sometimes ask those challenging questions like, is Jesus worth, for example, getting baptized in front of a whole crowd? Is Jesus worth um, getting rejected by others and potentially rejected by people in your workplace or friends at school? Is Jesus worth that? Is Jesus worth having your family and those closest to you reject you. And these is, this is confronting to be considering these things. It's confronting because we then have to assess the cost. Is the personal cost of following Christ worth the treasure and the precious bl blood of Jesus that he spilt for us, being with him with it for eternity? And there's, we have to reconcile that. And why am I asking this? Well, it's to prepare our hearts. So we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what tomorrow holds. Um, 
you know, we can be quite comfortable in our, like, uh, society we live in, in Australia, you know, we've got a lot of comfort. But there's many of our brothers and sisters who are facing persecution around the world every day and face the real threat of death for their faith. And we don't know what the future holds. So in terms of our faith, let's be people who are continually growing in our appreciation and love for God. I got this, mess, this thought from the Desiring God website. So I'm just going to quote it. So Jesus wants you to waste, in other words, not value your life like Mary wasted her perfume. For it is no true waste. It is true worship. A poured out life of love for Jesus that counts worldly gain as loss displays how precious he really is. And in John 12 verse 25 it says, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now let's move on to the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. Um, so, yep, perfect. Thanks, Dennis. That's exactly where I want to be. So in verse 10 we read that Judas, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, verse 11, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. So G Judas, we don't really know a lot about him. We don't have like a lot of accounts of interactions he had with Jesus through his life. Um, curiously enough, if you're interested in watching a portrayal of Judas, then I'd recommend watching um, The Chosen, which is a, a TV series based on the life of Jesus, but a lot of detail around these followers and disciples and the people around him. And in that um, season three, which has just been released, they have a they showed Judas as someone who came out of a business background. So he was working for a businessman and he kind of like a shrewd businessman. And that sort of maybe planted the seed of greed in Judas. But in any case, what we do know about him from the Gospels is that he was someone who was in charge of the finances. He, he carried the money bags around and would have distributed money, I'm sure, for needs for the ministry, but also giving to the poor, etc., we do know as well that he helped himself to the money um, and was effectively a thief. So he was not um, without blame in that sense. Jesus actually identified him as a devil and after he'd chosen his 12 disciples. Um, but they are disciples wouldn't have known they were referring to Judas, but to call him a devil is effectively calling him a deceiver because that's what the devil is, he's a deceiver. So, um, yeah, this story of Judas, is it's almost exactly in terms of the, the spirit and the, how the fruit, compared, comparing Judas to Mary is like complete contrast. So it's really interesting that we have these two stories at a complete contrast to one another following. Um, and we read, I want to just look at this 
example of Judas and what we can learn from his life. Because I think Jesus, you know, nothing Jesus did or planned was is wasted. Um, the fact that Judas portrayed Jesus actually, you know, it led to his crucifixion, Jesus' crucifixion, which was the most wonderful thing in hi- all of history. And that was planned. But there was also, there's also a dark side to Judas. And it's worth exploring that, I think, for a little bit. In Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus said that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God. And some translations say money, others say mammon. I think the way I understand it is it's actually not, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's money, but it's also the, the love of money, that spirit of love and lust and greed. That's what I think it's referring to. Um, and it's always good to point out that it's not possessing money that God is um, judging. It's actually the heart's desire and love of it. So it's worth really noting that having money in itself is not a sin. So in Judas we see this confronting example of what loving money and I guess hating God can look like because we see that in the life of Judas we don't really see anything from the disciples or his behavior that he would be the one that would betray Judas and even in fact from John's gospel even when Jesus identified Judas as his betrayer the disciples didn't really believe it they were like they didn't actually know they thought, oh, he's just left the room as he, I don't know, needs to go somewhere. But it was really clear that Jesus said, this is my betrayer, who, when he dipped the bread and gave it to Judas. So, um, yeah, they were blinded to it. And what that means is that when we look at the people, um, fellow believers, who follow God and appear to be devoted to God, on the inside, they may actually be despising him. And that's quite confronting because, you know, we, we tend to go, well, everyone, everyone is following God, doing things for God, loves him. But Jesus said that you cannot serve two masters. And Judas was serving God in his thing. But clearly... Um, God is looking deeper than we can see. He's, he can see right into his people's hearts. And ultimately, Judas is an example that we should not put our trust and our faith in the, our possessions and serve, serve those things and desire them with an ungodly attitude. So I want to make it really practical. How do we know if this kind of sin is present in us? Because we don't want to be like Jews. We don't want to stand before God one day 
and have done all these things for God and served Him, and then re- God reveals our heart, and it looks really ugly, and we don't want to be there. So how do we practically guard against this sin? And I've got a few questions we can ask ourselves. How much do we think about our income, our investments, or super, particularly with a desire for them to increase? Is it often on your mind? Is it often something you're thinking about? And I know myself, I've had times in my life where I've thought about it too much and God's rebuked me about that and corrected me and I've had to repent of that. And this is not to cast judgment on anyone, like because, you know, I've done it myself. But if that is, if you find, if you think, yep, that's me, then bring it to God in prayer. Bring it to God in prayer. And then ask Him to show you where you're putting a trust. Do you get more joy from giving away money or from seeing your income, money and assets go up in value? What gives you more joy? Do you get joy from giving to ministries, to the king, kingdom projects, to this church? Or is it your joy come from seeing your own personal wealth or possessions increase? If it's, if it's the latter, again, bring it to God in prayer and start to develop and foster a, an appreciation for what your giving does and the impact it has on the kingdom of God and people's eternity because you should never underestimate that. And God sees every, even if it's tiny and seems small to you, every act of love you do for Him, He sees that and He's recording that and you're going to be rewarded for it in eternity. So don't downplay or underestimate what your giving can do to bless others and to bless the heart of God. Finally, when you hear people or yourself boasting of their wealth or their plans to get wealthy, coveting after things or expressing their discontentment with what they have, does that grieve you? <coughs> does that grieve your spirit? Does that, does that set off an alarm bell in you and say, that's not really, that's not what I want from my life? And so if that's happening or if, if that's happened to you, then that's where you can be sh- be, have confidence that God is speaking to you on this topic and you have heard from him. Um, Psalm 62 verse 10 says very simply, and if your wealth increases, don't make it the center of your life. Just some really another practical thing to do. Train your mind to think like a steward, a manager, and not as an owner. Because if we really, at the core of our life, when we become a follower of Jesus, we give up our life, give it to God, and He takes possession of us. And so everything He's poured into our life, we're managing, we're stewarding. And that will help us have... uh, a godly mindset with our resources. Matthew 6.20 Lay up yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust us corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also.
Okay, let's go on to Peter and the disciples denying Jesus. Cool, yep, so we're up to 29, great. So I'm just going to read out from verse 27. On the way Jesus told them, All of you will desert me, for the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter said to him, Even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times that you even know me. No, Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. And all the others vowed to do the same. So what I think is really interesting about this is that after three years with Jesus, these disciples had witnessed signs, miracles, wonders, and yet they heard this word from God and they didn't believe him. They said, no, don't believe you. Like We're not going to deny you. Even though Jesus said, you're actually going to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy. So it was like, you know, you're going to fulfill the word of God. And why, was, why did they react like this? What, what caused it? Well, I think there's a few reasons, but one of them is pride. So they didn't believe that they could do something to hurt Jesus and they wouldn't betray him because they were trusting in their own ability and their own strength. They trusted in their ability to be faithful to God rather than accepting his word and receiving it however much it grieved them. And sometimes it can be hard to receive a word from God. Like sometimes it can be challenging. Sometimes it can be really confronting. Sometimes it can bring shame. Sometimes it can bring guilt. Sometimes it can bring, yeah, a, hopefully it can bring humility and humbleness. For when we humble ourselves before our God, he gives us grace. He lifts us up. He exalts those that are humbled. So when we hear from God, when we look into his word, we have to really have a heart of humbleness and humility to be able to hear from him. Are we willing to change our beliefs? Are we willing to allow God to show me how he sees me? that again it can be confronting because there can be seen in our life that he sees or are we going to be allow ourselves to be stubborn and have a hardened heart we don't want those things and we see the weakness of their fleshly nature you know Jesus said stay with me and pray watch with me and pray and you know if ever Jesus needed his disciples with him, if ever in his whole life he needed support, it was at that moment and his disciples let him down. I mean, how would that make you feel in that situation? How incredibly, you know, 
saddened would that make you feel? And you can see the sadness in Jesus when he said, you know, Peter, you know, how come you couldn't just stay up and watch with me and pray? You know, he rebuked him and was surprised, I think. You know, Peter was zealous. He was bold for Jesus. But he, as I said before, he needed to be humbled before he could be used by God. He needed to come to face that reality that he can't do anything without God working through him. It's a good news, though. It's good news because Peter did not let this fall. He did not let this stumble define him. He, he wept bitterly, we read, after he, the cock crowed the third time or the second time and he denied Jesus three times. He wept bitterly. He repented and he didn't allow this, 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 this sin to define him. And he went on to do great things for God. He preached to 3,000 at the day of Pentecost. He became like the leader of the church. It's interesting like that he fulfilled this, this prophecy about you know, the sheep being scattered. It says God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And that sheep that was scattered, that was Peter, ended up becoming the shepherd of the church, one of the leaders. So God's grace is amazing. He can turn any situation, any fall that we experience, he can turn it around for good. And we, I think it's just a good reminder to not let our stumbles, our falls, our weaknesses def define us, but let the free gift of righteousness we've received by the work of Jesus on the cross, which is the gospel, which is the good news, that Jesus paid the price for our sins, that we didn't earn it, we didn't des deserve it, but because he did that perfect work, as we've heard. He was worthy. We've sung it just before. His blood was worthy. He was able to live that righteous life, and in return we've received it through faith. God's looking for men and women who are stable, have integrity, and who let their actions speak for themselves rather than their big statements. Um, I've got a little bit more I could share about overcoming rejection and I think this is probably a bit like it's a big topic and I've no way I could really cover it all but maybe I'll just say that we can learn from the example of Jesus and how he dealt with rejection. I think there's no one who was rejected perhaps more ever in all of history than Jesus who faced rejection more than him. And I believe that rejection is something that all of us will experience at some point in our life. It is effectively the act of pushing someone or something away. It's the root of brokenness in our world. It's effectively the opposite of love. Everyone carries some hurt. Everyone carries rejection from some point in their life. And the people, people closest to you are often the pe mo people most likely to hurt you over the course of your life and includes not only your natural family but also your spiritual brothers and sisters. So 
how we deal with, how we handle, how we overcome rejection will have a huge impact on our spiritual life, our spiritual growth. Um, and again, there's a lot we could, I could say here, but I'm just going to say that personally I've gone through periods of, of rejection. Um, my family situation, I've seen um, close family members seduced by non-believers and, and taken away from other close people in my family. Um, you know, broken relationships, um, even um, abuse, abusive relationships I've seen in my family. You would have your own stories of rejection. I'm sure that's not common, not just, not just exclusive to me, but each time I've faced these encountered rejection, I've had to go to God and seek Him for His grace, for His power, for His strength to be able to forgive, to be able to love. There's times when you have to remove yourself from a situation, from a person, but ultimately God wants in our heart to be able to extend out forgiveness to others. And there's a couple of verses in Ephesians that really, I think, help with this. And one of them is to say that, Ephesians 1 verse 5, Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the Beloved. God accepts us. He is, loves us unconditionally. And when we fully grasp that love that he has for us, that he's truly accepted us, then we can see others through the lens of God. And I think it's amazing because when Jesus said to his disciples, you're going to betray me, you're going to deny me. Oh, and by the way, we're going to meet up in Galilee after I'm risen from the dead. It was like, he didn't, even have, he didn't carry any offense at all. Not one bit of offense was in his heart. But he saw in the distance, I'm going to be reconciled with you. We're going to be together. And it was this message of hope. And that's what love does. It carries hope in every situation. You might have pain. You might have hurt in your heart towards close family members or even fellow believers. But I encourage you to go to God and look at that person with the eyes of love. See into the future where you want them to be. Is it with Jesus in eternity where you'll be? I hope so. And then God will give you that grace you need. God will give you that grace you need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your great love that you demonstrated through your son by sending your son for us to die on the cross and take upon our sins. Rise, he rose again to justify us. Now we are freely forgiven for everything we have done. We thank you, Jesus, that you've shown us examples in your word, people who loved you and were devoted to you and poured out their lives and all they had for you. You also showed us examples of people who carried... Um, feelings or desires in their heart which were not from you and 
that took them away from you, God. And we can learn from these, this example as well. And I thank you, Father God, that we can overcome every hurt, every pain, every rejection we've experienced from others or if we've shown it towards others as well, Lord. I just pray, Lord, that your grace would just be upon us, be upon your people, that you would reveal your heart to us, reveal your love for the people you've put in this world. And Lord, give us the grace to be able to forgive, forgive ourselves and to, to really grow up into the fullness of Christ and to know the, full, the length, depth and breadth of his love. In Jesus' name, amen.